Now, it's Health Naturally with herbalist and natural therapist, Dennis Stewart. Dennis, today you're going to talk about one one of the most controversial practices mm. that uh, come up with uh, in connection with naturopathy. Mm. We like a little bit of controversy, don't we, on we this do uh, indeed, program? Jane. We shall look at the topic of iris diagnosis. Is there a basis to it? And is it useful for interpreting human health and disease? From Carrington. And you've got a question about coffee, Cheryl. Yes, hello, I do. Um, sorry about uh, not being today's subject. I'll be interested okay, to hear Cheryl. on that. That's okay. <laughs> but um, coffee, I was wondering, mm-hmm. Dennis, whether instant has the same effect. Look, instant coffee is, is coffee. All it is is, mm-hmm. is a, a powdered... Uh, mm-hmm. Processed coffee bean. It would still con- it would still contain the uh, caffeine and other constituents that uh, that mm-hmm. brewed that brewed coffee would contain. So um, mm-hmm. my uh, short answer to it would be I can't see any difference really, apart from okay. perhaps the taste um, and the varying flavours that one can get with. Um, coffee, ro- uh, roasted coffee beans. Roasted, yes. But, no. I try and have that once a mm-hmm. day, but yep. sometimes on the go, the instant just comes in handy yeah, no. sometimes. So. Now, look, uh, oh. the, the, mm-hmm. the, the instant coffee, as far as I am aware, and I think I'm right on this, all that it is is a conveniently processed coffee bean which allows the constituents to be more easily extracted from the powder mm-hmm. by the hot water. Great. I do try and have the organic one. Okay. Um, so hopefully that will be all right. Oh, look, whether it's organic or not, well, I mean, I'm a fan of, fan mm, of organic okay. food. But, but coffee is coffee. Powdered coffee, let me come back to it, is essentially a coffee bean that has been dried or roasted and subsequently reduced to a powder in order for the coffee to be conveniently um, giving up its characteristics, it's caffeine, theobromine and other constituents that it has mm-hmm. to boiling water. Mm. Okay, fantastic. Okay, Cheryl. So Thank you. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Okay. Puts your mind at rest, Cheryl. Great stuff. So coffee, obviously, is an interesting topic. A well, hot I think topic, it, it's say. raised more interest than I would have thought, but mm. um, it, it's good because, um, as, as I tried to point out last week, it's a convenient, economical beverage but it also has some potentially very useful health properties. Yes, mm. not just a mm. useless indulgence. Absolutely. <laughs> well, today, iridology <laughs> uh-huh. and iris diagnosis. Okay. Tell us a little bit about it. Okay. What is it? Well, the two terms uh, are pretty well synonymous. In fact, iridology is probably a less controversial term because the moment one uses the term diagnosis, one implies, if you like, a, a medical procedure. But nevertheless, there are numerous texts on iris diagnosis or iridology um, that are around the place and which uh, most of which I have read and indeed lectured from because I have conducted uh, courses on iridology for the bulk of my professional career. It was, and still is to a large extent, a characteristic of naturopathic medicine to regard the iris of the eye as giving potential indications as to the health of the patient or indeed as developing disease processes. Um, So a naturopath or a medical herbalist uh, would, in the context of a consultation, very frequently 
look into the iris. Um, frequently these days it's done with, uh, with magnifying equipment and these days also the iris by some practitioners is even photographed in order to be able to get uh, a better colour, uh, to spend time looking at the iris. But it is essentially a, a weapon, if you like, that a natural therapist would use in the context of a consultation to reinforce um, conventional diagnosis or, equally importantly, to perhaps come up with a theory as to what is going on with the patient, particularly where mainstream medicine has exhausted its potential, its testing, its pathology, etc., in finding the unwellness factor of the patient. Iridology essentially says that the iris, particularly what are called lesions or marks within the iris, parting of the iris fibres, discoloration in the iris, some unique sign characteristics can be useful. And I'll use that term useful. I refuse to use the term uh, exclusively useful and I, I will not use the term um, always accurate. It is simply uh, one modality that a naturopath or a herbalist would use in making a health assessment of the patient where looking for signs in the texture of the iris he starts or she starts to build up a possible hypothesis of what the patient is suffering from or drifting towards. Now, the controversy mm. to do with it, and there mm. is controversy, why? Oh, look, I think it boils down to the fact that, like so many aspects of natural medicine, um, the science, the rigid science that is required these days to get respectability doesn't seem to be there. What iridology is based on, in my opinion, is empiricism. That is... It is a medical technique, a diagnostic technique, a health assessment technique that has emerged as a result of the observations that practitioners over a couple of hundred years have made about disease conditions and changes in the iris. But the rigid science that we require today in almost anything is not there, in my opinion anyway, is not there to support the claims the successes, the usefulness of this modality. Despite the fact, Jane, and I think I was talking to you about this before we came on, despite the fact that some of the best papers are written on iridology or iris diagnosis have in fact been written by medical practitioners. Um, unfortunately, unfortunately, the controversy surrounding it and the, the, the way in which it has been maligned by not being able to satisfy a rigid scientific explanation has led in some natural therapy circles to iris diagnosis or iridology to be marginalised as an attempt to obtain respectability. And I think that's very sad because when I was studying um, many, many years ago, it was a necessary component of a naturopathic or herbal medicine curriculum. Okay. But mm. it's now seemingly, uh, even in some, not all, in some natural therapy circles and in some natural therapy colleges, um, it is not taught or accepted because, again, uh, natural therapy has been thought to be capable of being entirely um, practised and explained along rigid scientific lines. And in my opinion, it can't 
because in my view, in my view, traditional medicine, traditional medicine is what it is. It's tradition. It is based on observations made over hundreds of years. In the case of herbalism, observations made over a couple of thousand years pertaining to the usefulness of plants, many of which can't yield their secrets as to why they're useful. And similarly with some of the techniques that are used by naturopathic practitioners and herbalists, they have emerged over many, many years and are accepted on the basis of empiricism. And my view is empiricism is not something that should be relegated uh, to, the, to the waste bin. Empiricism is respect for the knowledge and the wisdom that has been passed to, to us. And so much of traditional medicine, not just iridology, is very much empirically based. I could not practice, I could not practice uh, my system of medicine today if I didn't have absolute trust and confidence in the empiricism associated with it and my reverence and regard for it. Dennis, uh, 49216216 is the number if you've got a question to put to Dennis. And Bruce has rung in from Rutherford. Uh, Bruce, um, we're going technical, are we? Hello. Hello, Bruce. What's your Hello, question? Mm. Well, I saw a show on TV recently. It was about a super-duper artificial intelligence uh, medical computer. And they take a photograph of the eye, so it has to be iridology, wouldn't it? They take it. Oh, well, 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 remember, the eye and the iris, in fact, every part of the eye um, is an important um, thing for medicine to be interested in. Iridology is that aspect of, of, uh, of the eye or the study of the eye, which is the controversial part. But the eye is taken with great regard and seriousness uh, by ophthalmologists, by optometrists, by general practitioners, uh, and any equipment, scientific or robotic or computerised, that can enhance or enhance the medical conclusions made from a study of the eye, that, that's that's great, that's wonderful. It's just that the iris has never been seen by mainstream medicine and is not regarded by mainstream medicine as saying anything significant about the health of the individual or about disease tendencies. And uh, I'm not confident, I'm not confident that that's likely to change, even though the, the literature in the English language is out there, is credible, uh, which I have read most of and lectured from for many years. Yes, I use herbalists and iridology, or they use it. Yes, yes. But I just thought they'd have to be doing that with... They reckon they could, you know, predict your diseases and that and solve a lot of things. Oh, look, be using that I, I, to, I, I, didn't, I didn't actually see the, the program, but it may have had something to do with iridology, uh, but um, I'd be surprised if that was the case. I think it's probably using technology, computerisation, uh, etc., to get a more accurate interpretation of disease processes which are already known and uh, seek to be diagnosed uh, from the eye by mainstream medicine. It's, it also sounds a little bit like one of these things that uh, will become commonplace or may become commonplace in 20, 30, 40 years' time but is still in its infancy. It is. Artificial intelligence. It's that's good. that's interesting. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Bruce, for ringing in mm. with mm. that. That's mm. good. 49216216 for your questions, comments, input, etc., etc. Health Naturally.
Jane, one of the things that um, I should emphasise at this stage, in fact, I intimated it earlier in my comments, was that iridology has been um, predominantly documented uh, by medical practitioners. I was thinking about that in, in, the, in the break here. Um, in fact, probably the um, most modern and probably the most medically oriented uh, text on iridology or iris diagnosis um, has been written by a German doctor. I don't think he is alive now, uh, Dr. Josef Deck. His, his uh, writings, the two volumes of his works on iridology or iris di diagnosis, uh, are superb and probably, probably the very pinnacle of literature that's been written on this topic. He was an interesting chap. He was a German doctor that was captured uh, by the Russians and taken back to Russia and obliged to work as a doctor in, in Russian hospitals, etc. Um, and while he was there, his interest in, um, in, in iris diagnosis, which must have been latent, uh, accelerated. And he, in his clinical work, he, he was able to make uh, documents, comments, notes, diarise a lot of findings pertaining to the iris in patients that he was responsible for, and largely as a result of, of his experience as a German doctor working for the Russians, uh, coming back um, to his homeland, he wrote those two books. But my point is, here is a medical doctor, a medically trained person, admittedly, uh, trained in continental medicine, mainstream medicine, um, using or happy, happy to explain um, iris diagnosis from his perspective and findings. Also, it's worthwhile noting that if we come down the road a little bit and look at France, um, probably one of the greatest exponents of iris diagnosis or iridology was the great French medical practitioner and homeopath. The French have great regard for homeopathy, which we've touched on during the year on this program. And his name was Dr. Leon Vanier, V-A-N-N-I-E-R. And I have uh, a number of his books at home which in my lecturing days I would use as reference texts. He has an excellent section looking at some of the overt signs in, in the iris that he relates to, to disease tendencies. Dr Bernard Jensen, the American, maybe not medically trained, but in the US a medically trained chiropractor, is also well known in the world as one who has written credibly on the topic of iridology or iris diagnosis. So my point is that even though iris diagnosis or iridology is controversial and being in fact uh, increasingly maligned in my opinion, its, its roots are firmly based on the work of medical practitioners who have observed, and this is the point, who have observed. I believe, I believe there are many pathways to, to finding truth. And the, uh, I mentioned on this program during the year the writings of the great German medical practitioner and herbal medicine exponent, Dr. Rudolf Weiss. Now, in his English translation of his book, Herbal Medicine, chapter one, which I have used in my lectures to any postgraduate group for the last 30 years, in chapter one of that book, he points out, he points out that medicine, in fact, 
is not pure science. Medicine is founded, he claims, and I support this, on two pillars or two premises. One of those is certainly science, and thank God for science, so we're not being unscientific in our discussion today. But what Vice says is this, there is what's called empiricism, and empiricism is the wisdom and knowledge that's passed on as a result of human observation, a lot of which can't be scientifically explained or quantified. And Vice made the point that the real practice of medicine is based on those two pillars, each dependent on the other. Now, to a large extent, in my opinion, this pertains to what we're talking about today. Iridology or iris diagnosis still hanging out, if you like, for more science to explain it and support it, but very strongly based on the pillar of empiricism. This is Health Naturally on 2NURFM, 49216216 for your calls. And, oh, now I am not quite sure. Hello, is that Julie we've got with us? Yeah, hi. How Julie are you? from Newcastle has rung in. And your question's about apple cider vinegar, is it? Yes, it is. Right. Hello, Julie. Hi, how are you, Dennis? I'm well, indeed. How can we help you? Well, Dennis, it's a bit of an um, interesting story because I heard something vaguely about apple cider vinegar. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people I know drink it to, for their digestive system. Mm -hmm. But I decided to um, look it up a little bit more than that as far as using it on your, your face as a cleanser and your body. And apparently it, it has some sort of similar... Um, pH to the blood in your body um, and so when I started using it it actually started it actually stimulates the cells in your skin and it has this really weird um, healing process which um, I, I've always been a sun lover from you know a thousand my father was a beach inspector yes, so yes. from day one we were up on the beach and I I, refuse, I don't go to doctors at all, ever. And um, so I just decided to start use, using this on my skin and mm -hmm. it started bringing out all these uh, massive sores all over my um, face and my neck and my chest. And um, But I just used it religiously twice a day. I don't know, I just had this feeling it would work, which it did. And, and then, but I also have a, um, a slight, it's, I guess it's like a cancer um, on my nose, but it's um, not something that can kill me, if that makes sense. Um, I don't know how you describe that. But so I, I don't know, for some reason, I decided to start using eucalyptus oil as well after I cleansed myself with the apple cider vinegar. But... The apple cider vinegar has to have the mother in it. Um, mm. So then I started using eucalyptus oil, but not direct, not straight eucalyptus oil, the solution, because mm. the other one would burn you. And it's just... And I had a staph infection when I came back from Bali recently on my hands, and I started using eucalyptus oil on that, and it literally, my hand was blowing up like a balloon and my daughter said you have to go to hospital and then I used it within six hours it digressed and it went down and and it's healed it 
So mm. do you have any understanding of all of that? Look, I have regard for apple cider vinegar. Um, I have not um, been uh, familiar with any uh, topical uses that you've been referring to. And to an extent, I'd be cautious about going down the pathway you have gone. See, apple cider vinegar is it, it contains a very weak le level of, of acetic acid. So when it's topically applied, it would have some, um, I suspect, mild antiseptic characteristics, but might not be advisable to use particularly on, on sensitive skin and particularly on the face. And with reference to the lesion that you've mentioned on your, on your nose, uh, can I just say that it, it might be one of those lesions that uh, could kill you unless you actually have it looked at. I had experience of where I let a, a basal cell carcinoma um, just drift along because it was misdiagnosed uh, by a practitioner, only to find down the track that I had to undergo fairly significant um, surgery to have the lesion removed, and fortunately it was done very well and very effectively. So two things from what you've said is, look, using anything topically that has acidic characteristics or using anything topically that has powerful essential oil characteristics, such as eucalyptus, need to be used very, very cautiously. Uh, I'm not criticising, I'm just bringing in some caution there uh, and to be a little bit aware. And if you have a lesion on your nose, you get straight to your GP and get it looked at because I've seen consequences of where things like that have been let go. So just take those things on board. My own mother, um, who's now departed, um, she was a great fan of using apple cider vinegar and, li and uh, lived to nearly 90 and put down her uh, long life to her daily oral ingestion of a small amount of apple cider vinegar and honey. Um, and that is a fairly traditional and reasonably well-documented way of using it where I suspect, where I suspect the apple cider vinegar may have some uh, improving effect on digestion, its bitterness, etc., and may accelerate the whole digestive process, particularly of the upper gut. So um, I'd, uh, coming back to what you've been doing, who am I to, to, to criticise you, but just be a little bit cautious. It sounds as though uh, that's definitely a good idea. Thank you, Dennis, and thank you for your call, Julie, and hope that helps. Uh, now, uh, Mark has rung in, uh, Dennis, from Cessnock on 49216216. Mark, you've got a question about osteoarthritis in your knee, is that right? Oh, yes. Hello. Hello, Dennis. Hello, Mark. Um, mate, I've had a, an X-ray recently yes. and on my hip, upper leg and hip. Yes. And the doctor tells me that it's the early stages of osteoarthritis. Okay. Yes, yes. Um, it does get quite uncomfortable and yes. painful. I've, yes. I've been taking Panadol, Osteo. Yes. Um, he hasn't recommended anything else. Would you? Can you suggest any natural product? Well, I, I would... I'm a great fan, by the way, of Panadol, Osteo, but... Um, for the early stages of osteoarthritis, I'd have to encourage you to access uh, the glucosamine and chondroitin range of preparations. I myself, I myself, and I'm a much older man, I, I suspect, than what you are, and, and my knees uh, show a lot of wear and tear, largely as a result of 30 years standing up six hours a day lecturing, uh, but I survive by using my own preparation of yes. this, this uh, glucosamine and chondroitin. So 
I appreciate what your good GP is doing, but I think what you have to try to do, try to do, one can make no guarantees, but I think what you need to be a little bit more proactive and look at this nutritional information that's associated with glucosamine and chondroitin and also the New Zealand green lip muscle. New Zealand green lip muscle contains uh, similar characteristics to that of glucosamine. In fact, was out there even before um, glucosamine was out there. So I think... Uh, how old are you, Mark? 57. I oh, only a baby. Um, look, <laughs> I don't feel like it. <laughs> well, I'm, t- I'm, I'm 20 years in front of you. So, look, okay. what you've got to do is take on board what I've said. Um, okay. Get up and get some um, some glucosamine and chondroitin uh, with uh, some New Zealand green dip muscle. Now, listen, the thing is, uh, yes. this, this is not an over, over overnight trip. If, sure. you, if you're going to work at this, you have to give it a good try. You have to work with it for months and months and months. And then, sure. if you want, then if you want to go off it, go off it for a month. And in most cases, people are happy to get back on it. Sure. Where would I find? Where do I, I get hold of that? Look, there. You've got a good health food store in um, in Cessnock. I know it well. I know Mark there. You've got Bowen's in Cumberland Street. I know them. Um, okay. You've got your pharmacies. Most of them would stock. Uh, reputable products. These are so easy to procure these days. Steve, thank you for waiting. Now, you've got a question. You've rung in from Raymond Terrace and you've got a question about cholesterol and that is high levels of. Yes, yes. I just went to a blood test of my doctor recently and Mm -hmm. uh, he said my cholesterol level's about 5.2. He said you'd like it to be under 4. So I've got to go back and get another blood test in February and I don't really want to go on statins because he says if it's up, it hasn't gone there, he's going to put me on a statin. At five point, um, so at five point two, did you yes, say? Yes. Are, are you uh, are you hypertensive? Do you suffer blood pressure? Yeah, it's a tiny bit. I take uh, like a four milligram uh, uh, candesatin. Yeah, that's uh, it's a very low dose. Are, of are, are, you, are you diabetic? No. Well, I. C- I'm not um, not not being critical of what has been said to you by your GP, but I find it I personally find it difficult to see how someone could be recommending a statin for a reading of 5.2. Now I'm not a doctor and I'm not criticising medical practitioners, but I am I am very very sceptical of the way in which uh, statins are seemingly being increasingly used to treat what I would call um, questionable levels of cholesterol. I I find 5.2 and a consideration to get it lower, I find that's something which, from my reading, I'd have to controvert. Um, I, 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 I'm just a little bit stunned by what you've said. Yeah, well, uh, well my mother, she's passed away now, but she was on statins for a number of years. She finished up getting a dementia. Now, I've heard yeah, that there's yeah, links between yeah. that and dementia, and, yeah. um, and she mm. was on... But she, hers was about eight. I I have probably done more reading on statins, their potential benefits, and also um, the side effects of them. My library is stacked with literature on this. I am quite prepared to concede there is a role for these substances and you should always be guided by your medical practitioner. But there is a downside to them. And I I have an opinion, I have an opinion, which I suspect I'm entitled to express, that I tend to think that the side effect that is perhaps not being recognised as it should be 
slight or minimal as it might be, is that which affects cognitive activity, the ability to, to, to think and the ability to remember. And I have, I have in front of me, well, in my mind, one patient in my rooms 18 months ago with his wife and she was complaining of the way in which he had de de deteriorated dramatically. His memory, his short-term memory was shot to pieces and my first question to this gentleman was, is your husband, to the wife was, is your husband on a statin? She said, yes. I yeah. said, I said, is he under a cardiologist? She said, yes. I said, you go to the cardiologist and explain the reaction that your husband is having. He was taken off the statin. Now, yeah. that, that is an opinion and I know that there will be many out there in the medical profession that we're ready to shoot my kneecaps off. At this stage of my life, I don't care. That's my opinion. <laughs> That's my observation. Yeah. And I come back to your point. I come back to your point at 5.2. I'd run a million miles for that about, from that advice. Yeah, oh, well, so I'm glad I called you there. Thank you, Dennis. Yeah, there's, there's always the option of a second opinion, of isn't course. there, Dennis? Yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's, that's a very good observation. In fact, uh, you must not accept mine as a second opinion. Go to another GP and get their opinion before you accede to it. That's what I'd be saying. And all the very best with that, Steve. Uh, Sharon has rung in from Redhead. Sharon, your question's about neuralgia. Yes, it is, uh, Jane. Thank you. Hello, Sharon. Hello, Dennis. Um, I've been diagnosed with trigeminal neuralgia. Oh, it's a nasty one, isn't it? Oh, it's it is, a nasty it is one. horrible. Yes. I'm going into my second month with it. Yes. Uh, the doctor has put me on Tegretol. Yes, yes. And um, I'm on 100 milligrams three times a day. Yes. And what it does to your system is, isn't kind. Yes. Your doctor has prescribed that because to treat this condition, there aren't a lot of options. Right. Um, there is one herb that is specific for it in the British Herbal Pharmacopoeia, and that is a herb called Gelsemium. G-E-L-S-E-M-I-U-M. G-E-L-S-E-M-I-U-L. I-U-M. I-U-M. Gelsemium. Now, it is in the British Herbal Pharmacopoeia. It's not a herb that's readily available, and it can only be prescribed and dispensed by a doctor or a, a, by a pharmacist. The herb, if misused, can be toxic, but oh. it, is, it is specific when used as a liquid preparation, a tincture. In the correct dose, it is very, very safe. And years ago, um, I had a colleague... Uh, who studied under me in Newcastle, who was a pharmacist, who was able to help quite a few people with uh, tic tolaru or what you'll call facial neuralgia by mm -hmm. dispensing tic to gelsemium. Now, it's hard to get, but right. it would be worthwhile going to your pharmacy, particularly a compounding pharmacy, mm -hmm. right? And they would probably have information on tincture of gelsemium Mm -hmm. And it may be that they can source the tincture. Uh, mm -hmm. There used to be uh, an organisation in Australia years ago that um, used to pr uh, supply pharmacists. I think right. the name of the company was James Craig. Don't hold me to it. But they no. used to, years ago, supply uh, things like lobelia and a lot of the liquid herbs that these days are not being used that much. 
I can't think of anything other than that that might be useful to you. If you can't get that, and I come back to the point, if you must only, you must only uh, obtain it legitimately from a pharmacy and preferably with a script from your GP. And the British Herbal Pharmacopoeia has the dosage and the indication in it. And if your pharmacist or doctor is interested in it, I'd be happy to email them the information from the British Herbal Pharmacopoeia to support what I have said. Oh, thank you very much. I'd appreciate that. Okay. So thanks very much for your call indeed, Sharon. Do hope that helps. And uh, just a, a final comment on, um, on that, Dennis. Mm. Uh, there was a call um, about how good your information or how useful your information on statins was. Oh, OK, that's good. That's nice to well, know. Well, I might survive assassination. <laughs> yes, you might indeed. In, in our last minute, perhaps, um, you might just wind up on iris, iridology, oh, iris diagnosis. Yeah, look, I'll, I'll be quick on this. Uh, but I frequently mention it in my lectures as to one case that supports everything I've said. Years ago in the 80s, I had a large practice in Redleaf Avenue, Warunga. I'm speaking a bit fast because our time's just about gone. <laughs> I remember one day a big rugby pl player came into the practice and I knew right from the start he was there to take the mickey out of me. And he said, I want you to look at me eyes and, and tell me if there's anything the matter with me. I said, well, look, I said, it's not a, a standard thing for me. I said, I usually use iris as part of... No, no, no. He said, you, I've heard that you're pretty good at picking up things. Anyway, I said, OK, this, is, this guy's out to get me. So I looked at his iris and I said, uh, he said, did you find anything? I said, oh, look, I said, the iris is not like that. It's not a fortune-telling device. I said, but... I said, there's an, an interesting mark or lesion in a zone in the iris that's frequently regarded as saying something about the testicles. And he sort of looked at me and he said, oh, there's nothing the matter with my balls. I said, well, OK. Anyway, he paid his money and he went. Anyway, about three months later, this guy got on the phone and he said, oh, Mr Stewart, he said, oh, I've got a lot to thank you for. I said, why? He said, you saved me life. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I went down to the rugby club, he said, and one of my mates there, he said, uh, uh, was a doctor. And when I told him what you've done, he said, they were all laughing and giggling about it. Anyway, he said, my mate, the doctor said, listen, come into the change room and I'll check you out. He said, so I dropped me Dax and he grabbed all of me balls and he said, listen, I think there's a little cyst on there. He said, you better get it looked at. He said, I got it more than looked at. He said, they took the testicle. It was cancerous. So he said, I owe you my life. Now, I'm not saying anything other than that that was a very useful confirmation of, of my regard for Iris diagnosis. That certainly would confirm and justify your using it, Dennis. It's a lovely story. I'm sure not every urologist in this town would take it on board, but that was one case <laughs> Where that stuck in the mind. Did yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Dennis okay. Stewart. And um, we will be back next uh, Friday on 2 Anuari. FM with Health Naturally. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com.